Well, Michelle and I are uh, Wisconsin kids through and through. We both grew up in small towns here in Wisconsin, and we uh, love being here. And uh, that said, we spent four years living in Chicagoland while I was in seminary. And um, being from small towns, we didn't love our time in the suburbs, but uh, there were some cool and unique opportunities because of our proximity to so many different uh, things and you know, resources and locations. And so uh, one of those unique opportunities that we had early on in our time there, maybe 2011 uh, or 2012, was a chance to go to an America's Got Talent audition screening. You, you've seen this show on TV, maybe you're still fans of it, uh, but we've been following for a few seasons back then, and we were really excited for the chance to go and see it live. And actually, uh, someone won that season from the audition that we we're at, which was pretty cool. So anyway, we show up to the theater, the Rosemont Theater in uh, one of the Chicago suburbs that day with our ticket in hand. It was an email printout because they, you know, overbook these things uh, so that the room is for sure filled. And, and there's a long line as we pull up and uh, we, we get in line, we park our car and we go get in line and um, it's, it's general seating. And so we're just standing there waiting and, and we're in line for probably, you know, 45 minutes or an hour or so. And we finally get to the back door of the theater, and you can kind of see in, and there's the lights, and, and, and this is where the magic is going to happen. And so we're, we're following along like we're supposed to, and then uh, it gets to us, and the people in front of us go in, and we're told, stop. And so we're thinking, there's no way, right? Like, we just, we drove 45 minutes here, now we've been in line for almost an hour. There's no way that the theater is full, and if you peek in, you we can see that there's open seats and there's this huge line of people behind us and there's no way they gave out that many tickets that we can't get in, that we're going to get turned away, right? And so we stand there uh, as the lady who stopped us um, talks on her radio and, and we don't know what she's saying because she kind of moves off to the side and, and we're thinking, okay, what's going on? And pretty soon she turns and she says, okay, follow me. And so we go in the door and we follow her past the back section, past the middle section, past the judges' table, and finally we're seated in row three, a few rows closer to the stage than the judges were. As I looked back, I could have sneezed on famous germaphobe Howie Mandel if I wanted to. We were that close to everything going on. We had some of the best seats in the house. We have a picture. You can see how close we were. Uh, it, was a, it was great. So we're looking at each other thinking, how did this happen? Like, why did we get picked, right? We're on cloud nine thinking we're hot stuff sitting there down row three closer to the stage and the judges. And, and we're thinking about how great we are and how awesome this is. But then we start to wonder, well, what are these couple of rows in front of us? Why aren't these filled? And I look back at the judges and, and look beyond their uh, seats. And, and there's a few rows in that middle section, too, with no people. What's, what's going on here? Well, then they started to bring in the hand-selected model types, you know, the young, fit, college-aged people in the prime of their lives. And, and we realized that despite the luck we had in being brought down to the front, and even though we were all dressed up, we actually weren't hand-picked for our looks so that we could uh, be in those rows that the camera would pan to over and over again. Right? And so as you can imagine, not having enough value in the eyes of those TV producers that day has haunted us for years. <laughs> Just kidding. Right? It's a great time and a fond memory for both of us. 
Well, that might be a silly example, but this morning James is going to talk to us about favoritism. This idea that we would show preference to people or groups of people based on some sort of personal or societal bias or some kind of benefit to ourselves, maybe for their good looks. Right? We do it for all sorts of reasons, but we tend to value what the world values and then what brings us some level of personal benefit. You might be thinking, well, what does this have to do with me? Right? And hopefully by the end you'll hear an answer to that. But if you're sitting here thinking, well, I don't show favoritism or favoritism doesn't really exist in the world today, maybe that's just because uh, it often walks around by some other more common names. Things like racism or division due to political leaning or affiliation, ageism, sexism. James uses the word judgment or judgmentalism, prejudice. Right? And we all know that there's way too much of all of those things going on in the world today, and even and especially in our churches. So, before we dive into this important text this morning about favoritism, would you pray with me? God, uh, we come before you uh, humbly this morning asking you to open our eyes and our hearts to the truth that you have for us. We recognize that your word uh, can be difficult to grapple with at times, and this morning might be one of those times. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would encourage us and convict us and teach us. We're grateful for the freedom that we have to gather in your name, and we know that wherever two or three are gathered, there you are. That's what your word tells us. And so we ask that that would be true this morning, that you would be among us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would open up to James chapter 2, uh, if you're using the Worship Center Bible, it's on page 978. I'm preaching from the NIV this morning, but whatever translation you want to use is just fine. As you do that, please know that we all struggle with these things, with these attitudes and behaviors, this problem of us versus them, where the us is people who look like us and think like us and act like us, and the them are anyone who looks different, or thinks different, or acts different, or sometimes it's just people who simply disagree with our views. James opens our text this morning in verse 1 with his premise. Look with me there. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. The main point that James has for us this morning is simple. As believers in Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. As believers in Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. That's James' main point, and then he's going to give us three reasons for this command. Reason number one, favoritism is evil. Look back with me at verses two through four. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James open up, opens up his reasoning with an illustration about a poor man coming in to a gathering of the church. I want to reimagine this story a little bit for us, for Crossview Church. So imagine this scenario with me. It's a beautiful Sunday morning here at Crossview, right? Sun is shining, the air is crisp outside. Two individuals show up. 
One of them uh, is rising star and quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, Jordan Love. His car pulls up and people begin to recognize him and the excitement builds and anticipation of him coming into the building uh, is growing, right? And, and, and there's a murmur among the crowd. Jordan Love is here. You're sending text messages and telling your friends, hey, I, I know you're, you're in your pajamas and you're sitting on the couch, but you might want to get off your butt and get here because Jordan, Jordan Love is here today at Crossview. Can you, can you believe it, right? You, get here. Come on. Get, get on some pants and, and let's go. Everyone's hoping that he'll sit in their row, right? That they can maybe have this cool and casual conversation like, hey, great to have you here. Yeah, we'd love to have you anytime. Oh yeah, this seat, this one that has my Bible on it and my purse and my water bottle, yeah, that's totally not safe for someone else, right? You, you can definitely have that spot. Yeah, okay, right? If, if someone that you've known for 10 years tried to take that spot that's your spot on Sunday, you might punch him in the face, but, uh, you know, it's the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, so of course that seat is open. But then, that same Sunday, another man rolls in, and he's not in a fancy car. He's casually dropped off in a taxi. He's wearing an oversized coat, and you can hear some plastic bags stuffed in his pockets, and it looks like he might have everything he owns on his person there with him. As he takes off his stocking hat, you can see his disheveled hair, and it's kind of greasy, and it looks like maybe he hasn't been able to wash it in a couple of weeks. As he makes his way through the foyer and into the worship center, you can smell him before you can see him. There's no text messages being sent, no eager smiles and longing eyes, hoping to hit it off and, and, and be like we're old friends. As he passes row after row, well, you probably know the feeling. Please don't sit here. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that seat with my stuff. Yeah, I'm saving that spot for my friend. They're, they're, they're not here yet, but my, they're, they're coming. They're going to sit there. The thoughts that you would maybe never say out loud, but are there nonetheless, right? Oh, please don't, please don't sit by me. What, what does he want? What is he going to try and get from me? This guy, why? Why is he here? Why don't you clean yourself up? James says that this behavior, this attitude, is evil. It's evil. Judgment and favoritism and discrimination and prejudice, it's not a small thing. He says it's evil. Why? And how do we know? Well, remember back with me to last week and the conclusion of chapter 1. Jesus is speaking to believers in uh, James 1.22, and he tells them, do not merely listen to the word, right, and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. And then he goes on in verses 26 and 27 with some pretty straightforward commands, and he tells us to control our tongues and to look after the orphans and the widows, the needy among us. He says that's what pure and undefiled religion is. See, in the first century, uh, the poor and the orphans and widows were, were uh, people with far and away the most difficult lives. In such a strong patriarchal society, they had very few rights and even fewer opportunities for bettering their situations. They had husbands and fathers, and they were supposed to be their protectors and providers, 
but then they're out of the picture. And so without them, their situations were bleak. In that time period, and, and unfortunately too often even today, orphans and widows are looked upon as burdens who bring little to the table beyond more responsibility and obligation. The gospel turns that attitude and that notion on its head. And the command of James requires that Christians pay special attention and give special care to needy people. And so, that's the backdrop for James' conversation with us this morning. If that's the call of believers, if our responsibility really is to care for the most needy people, the most vulnerable in our communities, then James' indictment in verse 4 is absolutely warranted. It is evil when we discriminate among people and show favoritism because of the value that the world places on them rather than the value God does. I want to pause uh, there and step back for a second and do a flyover um, of this series. James is all about wholeness, right? We've, we've called this series uh, James Becoming Whole. And the reason for that comes from uh, chapter 1, verse 4, that says this. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, uh, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's James' aim, that we would be mature and complete in Christ, not lacking anything. And so if you want to be whole, if you want to live your life in a way that lacks nothing, if you want to live your life to the fullest as God intended it, and if you want your life to be all in on the most important thing and not live with a, a divided heart or in a way that's two-souled, right, S-O-U-L, two-souled, then James is going to give us a lot of direct and blunt commands. And like hearing that the favoritism that we all harbor in our hearts at times is evil, and, and like hearing that we should listen and not be angry, and that we need to control our tongues and care for the needy, and on and on, that list is going to go. When we hear those things, it's going to be very easy for you to begin to think that you are the absolute scum of the earth who can never measure up. All right, some of us have already felt that as we've heard these first few messages. Because if we take an honest look at ourselves throughout this series, we're going to see at times a very bleak picture. When that happens, you need to remember two things. First, your salvation rests in the work of Christ alone. It rests in the work of Christ alone, not your performance not your effort, not your ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and behave better. Jesus purchased your salvation on the cross, and when he said, it is finished, he meant it. He meant it. So remember, your salvation rests in Jesus alone. And then, remember, if you want to be whole, and if you want to live your life as God intended you to, then, yeah, you're going to need to put in a whole lot of effort. A whole lot of effort. This stuff isn't easy, right? Dealing with anger issues or issues of prejudice isn't easy, right? It's never as simple as saying, okay, well, I guess next time I just won't get mad and I won't say the hurtful thing. Fixed it, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It's, it's not simple. It's much more difficult than that. 
It's doing what Dan prescribed last week and holding God's word up and, and letting it shine like a light on you and taking a sober look at what your life looks like and, and allowing other believers to speak into it. In short, like Dan said last week, it's, it's making a decision to change and then actually taking steps to bring about that change in your life. And if you want to lose weight, what do you do? You eat less and move more. It's simple as an idea, but it's really difficult in practice. It's a hard thing. It's hard work. If you want to stop showing favoritism and prejudice because you want to be whole and not be a judge with evil thoughts or, or any of the other behaviors that James is going to talk about throughout this series, you need to identify your prejudices. Then you share your sin with other believers. You ask for accountability and correction. Maybe you talk to a professional counselor or a therapist, someone who can help you dive into some deeper issues that maybe you weren't even aware that you had. It's not as simple and clear-cut as just, you know, try harder. And so asking for help from fellow believers or professionals does not somehow negate the power and effect of the gospel in bringing about transformation. So where am I going with all of that? Well, the point of James in calling out all these behaviors in his letter is not to make you or I feel awful. Instead, it's to show us a path towards wholeness. That's what he wants, is for us to be whole, mature and complete, not lacking anything. So remember, when you feel like you got kicked in the teeth and, and your sin is showing way, way more than you want it to, the purpose is not to make you feel awful. It's to expose these things in your life so that you can begin to cut them out in your pursuit of holiness and wholeness. So, favoritism is evil. It turns God's call to care for the vulnerable upside down, which flows right into reason number two. Favoritism contradicts God's choice. Look with me at verses five through seven. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Listen, James says. Look up from your distractions and stop your wandering minds and stop scrolling your social media and listen. God chose those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. And to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you, James says, you have dishonored the poor. And by the way, the rich, those that you're elevating, they're not only exploiting you and taking advantage of you and taking you to court to take your money, but they're blaspheming the name of the God you worship. James has used an illustration of the rich and the poor to this point, but as you've probably caught, this isn't just a text about the rich and the poor. This is a message about choosing to value the things that God values rather than the things the world values. Do you know what the word fickle means? That word comes up a lot in Christian circles, right? We, we talk about being fickle, but I don't think we know what it means most of the time. 
It simply means to change your loyalties and affections often. To be fickle means to change your loyalties and your affections often. And people like me and like you are fickle, aren't we? We're, we're loyal to shifting things. We're loyal to silly things. Things that bring us glory or make us look good. Things that bring us happiness. But then when that doesn't bring us happiness anymore, we're now we're, you know, we shift to something else. Things that bring us self-improvement. We value things like money and intelligence and strength and skill and athleticism. We value high performance. But are those things that God values? We have time for people who are well put together, right? We have time and coffee appointments and lunch meetings for people who can give us something, whether that something is friendship or knowledge or career advancement or maybe they're just footing the bill. All right, if you've got a chance for a conversation with some expert or guru in your field and, and you've scheduled an allotted amount of time and you have a meeting after, but they say to you, I'd really love to stay and talk longer, if you have time, you have time, right? You're not saying no. Whatever was after that meeting is bumped. But what about the people that God values? When that person asks you to go to lunch or to get coffee. And as that date approaches, you are scrambling to come up with an excuse to cancel right? Someone else, please ask me. Please make plans so I can say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm double booked. I can't do this. They drain your patience and your social battery and you had to pay and my goodness, they are just not good at conversation and this is so uncomfortable. Please just make it stop, right? Well, the thing is, God chose the needy and the poor and the broken and the invaluable in the world. And it's to those people that he's promised the kingdom. It's that group, he says, that are rich in faith. It's that group that God cares for so deeply. The American church uh, so often has her priorities all mixed up. We want people in our lives and in our conversations and in our homes who add value, who agree with us, who are funny who are likable, who are easy to enjoy. I'm not saying we shouldn't have any of that, right? Of course we should. Absolutely we should. We need to learn and grow, and, and it's a huge part of what discipleship is, following someone who's more mature than we are and spending time with people who are further down the line than us as they follow Christ. Absolutely. And, James says, care about who God cares about. Care about who God cares about. We, as a church and as individual Christians, cannot afford to communicate to the world that we value the same things that the world does. We don't. We do not value the same things. The world values power. We value Christ's power in the midst of weakness. The world values the rich. We value the poor in spirit. The world values success and lifelong achievement, and making a great name for ourselves. Scripture says, he must become greater, that is Jesus, I must become less. It's our great call to value the people that God 
values. And he has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Author Sam Albury says it like this. He says, James' point is a simple one. Favoritism is profoundly unchristian. It says, in effect, that someone who is worth more to the world is worth more to the church. And, correspondingly, that someone who is worth less to the world is worth less to the church. Favoritism ends up judging one person's soul as being of greater value than another's. And it does all this on the basis of superficial, worldly criteria. James will have none of it. So favoritism is evil. It contradicts God's choice. And finally, favoritism breaks the whole law. Look back with me at verses 8 through 11. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. During Jesus' teaching days in the book of Matthew, he's asked a question by an expert in the law, an expert in the scriptures. Teacher, this challenger says, which is the greatest commandment in the law? You may remember that Jesus answers him with words that show up in part here. Jesus replies to him, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. James then says, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted as lawbreakers. To show favoritism, to differentiate among people, and to behave differently towards those people based on some personal bias or preference or race or economic status or political affiliation or any number of other categories, James says, is to sin. It's a violation of what Jesus says is the greatest command. Showing favoritism, partiality, judgment, prejudice, any of those attitudes or behaviors are the exact opposite of upholding what Jesus says sums up the law and the prophets, to love your neighbor as yourself. And when it happens, we break not just a small point of the law, but the whole thing. See, James is getting after us a little bit here, because if you're like me, and apparently the early readers, you're probably struggling to think about this as a big deal, right? Like, I don't have to like everyone. It's okay if I think about some people a little bit less kindly, right? What's, what's the big deal? It's a small thing. They may never even know. It's just in my heart, right? And, and I don't treat that person any differently outwardly, and so they never even see it. But the thing is, breaking this so-called small portion of the law means breaking the whole of it and heaping guilt upon our heads. When I was a kid, like maybe five or six years old, 
um, I threw a rock through a window of my childhood home. We had a short gravel driveway, and it was a summer day, and I guess I was just bored. And so uh, I picked up a rock, and I threw it out. And it's, we all have these core memories, and this is one for me, because I can still see vividly this window with the hole through it. And uh, it's just a little hole right, right through, because I had a cannon for an arm even back then. So uh, it went straight through. Anyway, my parents come out, and um, I'm sure I got in trouble for it, and I was told never to do it again, and then life moved on. Well, the law is a lot like that window, and our sin is a lot like that rock. And when, when, when we do what James is talking about here, and we try to you know, shift the blame or move things around and, and downplay our sin, it's like me saying to my parents on that day, well, yeah, there's this little hole over here, but like 98% of the window isn't broken. So why am I even getting in trouble? Because I barely broke the window, right? Look at the rest that I didn't break. You see the problem, right? The window is broken. When we show favoritism, even though it's, it doesn't seem as egregious as cheating on our spouse or killing someone, James says we're guilty of breaking the law. And in doing so, we are broken and we are guilty. And so he says, if you want to be whole, if you want to live in a way that is not a divided heart and not too sold, love your neighbor as yourself and do not show favoritism. So James has given us his premise, right, that as believers we must not show favoritism. And then he gives us these three reasons, because favoritism is evil. It contradicts God's choice, and when we show favoritism, we break the whole law. So what do we do about it? Well, three things as we wrap up. Look back with me at verses 12 and 13. He says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The antidote to favoritism, first, is to recognize your own standing before a holy God. James opened his reasoning with an illustration, right? He said, imagine a rich and a poor man coming in, and he begged this question of, who are you going to pay attention and give honor to? Who are you going to value? And on what basis are you going to value them? And now, in these last two verses, he flips the script. Commentator David Gibson illustrates it like this. He says, now it's your turn. You're the one standing outside the door, and God himself pulls it open for you. And you're entering into his house. And as you walk in, you're holding the law in your hands. Two tablets of stone, right? Like the Ten Commandments. But they're broken into dozens of pieces. You're frantically trying to put them back together because you're the one that broke them. You smashed them over and over and over again with some sin here and some sin there showing favoritism, not loving your neighbor as yourself. And now, as, as you stand there in God's presence, you're desperately trying to put these tablets back together. You want it to be whole. You want your record to look good. You're trying to fix it, but you can't. You can't. And so here you stand before God, the most fair and right and just judge there is. And you 
are guilty of breaking the whole law. In that moment, what do you need? You need mercy. You need mercy. Friends, that mercy is found in Jesus Christ. The amazing promise of the scriptures is that when we come to Jesus and repent of our sin and follow after him, we are shown mercy because Jesus bore the judgment for us. Your standing before a holy God is not one of guilt and shame and pain. He doesn't, he doesn't see you standing there with the tablets all smashed. No, you stand before God and he shows you mercy. And he sees his beloved and perfect son who took your punishment. How then can you and I not show mercy to people around us? How can we... Trusting that God does not judge us based on our brokenness and our neediness and our lack of ability, continue to judge people in our lives and treat them according to those same traits that we exhibit. We are needy and we do not add value to God in any way. But God says, I love you. I love you, and I want a relationship with you. And he, and he sent his son to, to die so that he could have relationship, so that he could pay for our sin, because he wants us. His response is not to balk at a conversation or a request for a meeting. It's not to avoid us. It's not to devalue us. God's response to our neediness is overwhelming mercy and kindness. Friends, God's response to our own brokenness and desperate need should fill us with empathy and compassion and motivate us to love people, even and especially those people that we would not have a natural inclination towards. I alluded to the second thing earlier, but the second thing that we do is ask for help. We ask for help, right? In our journey towards obedience and a wholeness and through this book of James, we're going to need help, right? It's not enough to just identify the issues, and, and often we're going to struggle to see the own issues in our lives, All right? But we say, I get angry, I use awful language, I can't stand this group of people. That's a start, it's a first step, but it's not going to be enough, right? So ask for help. Share the burden of your struggle with someone. Share the burden of that sin, your life group, your spouse, a, a trusted friend, a counselor, a therapist. Ask them to help you identify blind spots. We all have blind spots. And then when they speak that truth, humbly accept their criticism and feedback. Pastor Dan has reminded us over and over again of Proverbs 27.6 that says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted. So when a friend wounds you because you ask them to, Trust them. It's not easy for someone to criticize you, even if you asked for it. So trust them. We need each other in this fight against sin and this journey towards wholeness. Finally, do the hard work. What do we do? We do the hard work, right? None of this is easy. The great lie that unfortunately circulates so many churches is that faith in Christ is easy and nothing could be further from the truth. Obedience to God and the pursuit of this kind of wholeness that James is talking about is really hard work. 
And yes, the Holy Spirit is working in you and he's transforming you and he's bringing about change in your life. And so you're not alone in this, but you do have to work in conjunction with what the Holy Spirit is doing. Have honest looks. Hold up scripture as that mirror and identify the issues as they're exposed in your life. And then step back and do the work of digging out the roots and seek to understand why, why is this sinful behavior happening? Where is it coming from? And then do whatever it takes to get it out of your life. None of these things are easy. At times, each of them are going to be painful, maybe very painful, right? They, we feel convicted of our sin. That's not pleasant. And then we're exposed before our friends and our family and certainly before God in heaven. It, it might be excruciatingly difficult at times. The thing is pursuing the life that God has for you. A life of wholeness and maturity and completeness in Jesus Christ will always be worth it. Let's pray.